Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Dark Crystal. Throb. At its centre. The crystal of truth. The source of all life. The Skeksis have corrupted it. And now our world is at risk from the darkening. What is the darkening? Behold. I saw something. A vision. We read too many stories. No, this was real! Everything the Skeksis ever told us was a lie. And now everyone and everything is at risk. Join me! So we may finally unite as one against our true foe, the Skeksis. We are eternal! Resistance is for me. Are you sure about this? No. But I have hope. again no it will be better For this episode, we are going to be covering the 1982 movie and the 2019 Netflix series Age of Resistance. I personally don't think anything happens in that show that is so much of a revelation that you absolutely need to see it play out organically before you hear about the overall story and production. However, if you are in the rarefied intersection of folks who really care about how the new series ends and don't want spoilers at all, yet, after all these many months, have still not yet had time to sit down and watch the eight hours of it, and we sympathise because it took us a few weeks ourselves, then this is the perfect excuse and a cherry to put on the top of your viewing experiences. Go see it, then come back and rejoin us. Everyone else, follow us. We're going to go exploring. With us, tied to the rope as we crawl around the mountain, are Muppet experts Mackenzie Easton. Hi-ho. And Nathan Bertram. Mm. <laughs> I hope that was the Chamberlain. Yep. From, from the Rainbow Connection podcast. And back by popular demand from our Guillermo del Toro season, it's Lauren Grieve. Hello, and thanks for having me. And I already hate you, Nathan, because I was going to do the same thing. <laughs> now, you can, you can I, go, I don't... So sorry. <laughs> My fallback was totally to scream like a fizz gig. So, so Alex, you definitely know me well. 
Okay. So <laughs> my first impulse was to speak in podling, but I just don't know the language that well. Yeah. Hop, 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 <laughs> hurrah! So for the uninitiated, uh, the film is a simple quest set on the planet Thra, wherein the last survivor of the Gelfling race, a boy named Jen, must travel to the castle of the evil vulture and crocodile-like Skeksis, who sustain their long life by vampirically drinking the essence of beings they consider beneath them, utilising the Dark Crystal. Jen was raised by the peaceful mystics, and along the way meets Kira, a Gelfling girl, raised by the jubilant, minuscule podlings. Also along the way, he crosses paths with Augra, a wise woman predicting the end of the world, who passes on a separated shard of the crystal, which will make it whole again, the doing of which requires Kira to give her life. Healing the crystal recombines the mystics and the Skeksis into the Urskeks, a well-balanced and wise alien race who journeyed to Thra a thousand years ago and then split apart. Now restored, they depart, leaving Jen and a healed Kira to start afresh. The Netflix series takes place several years before the film and sets up the many tribes of Gelflings as they were before the Skeksis exterminated nearly all of them. It ends with a hard-won victory, but context suggests that in the intervening years, the Gelflings are going to lose big time. By and large, it feels like something that we grew up with, rather than something we catch when we're 25 years old because a friend recommends it. So the first question would be, what is your personal history with this film? And I'm going to immediately defer to Sharon, who has, throughout our 19-year relationship, gone on and on about this film and has a, uh, a very intense relationship with it. I do, yes. I saw it on TV when I was very small. I couldn't tell you exactly how old I was, but my guess is that if it was released in the cinema in 1982, they probably showed it on TV around 86, 87. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would have been around then. So you'd um, have been about nine. A little bit younger than that, maybe. Okay. But uh, but yeah, somewhere around that age. So this is a piece that I wrote for the Synapse website a couple of weeks ago. And it outlines my experience of and love of the original Dark Crystal film. And this was written before we saw the... TV show. I've loved The Dark Crystal since I was little, and it sits in the category of formative fantasy of my childhood. The appeal of the film for me is not so much in the plot or the character interaction. Willow, Return of the Jedi, and Labyrinth are much better in those regards, but in the themes and philosophy. The Dark Crystal feels to me like a more epic, serious version of Fraggle Rock both instilling in me a love of stories about the interactions between various types of people who have to live in a given world without really applying any judgment about who should or shouldn't be there. They are both cautionary tales about the dangers of being the powerful, whether in stature, knowledge or access to resources, if you don't consider how your actions impact on those around you, if you view them as no more than resources. Already a huge fan of the Crone archetype, I was positively inspired by the cackling neutrality and ironic observational nature of Augra. I have a Funko Pop of her in my bedroom, it's the only Funko Pop that I own, which reminds me that since I was a little girl, what I really wanted to be when I grew up was an old woman who sees and knows far more than people give her credit for. 
The innocence and naivety of the Gelfling, their beauty and creativity, and the fact that this doesn't save them was heartbreaking to me. But I loved the way Jen and Kira are so determined to keep trying. It taught me that it was possible to live in a threatening world and still be good, no matter what. And this was backed up by my admiration for the frankly hobbit-like resourcefulness and non-malevolence of the podlings, their ability to live with the earth and do their own thing, and how unfair it was that they were used so cruelly. And at the end, the blending of the Uru, mystics, and the Skeksis blew my tiny mind. The implications as I frantically reverse-engineered this to the original division of the Urskex, I had no access to the wider mythology at this point, allowed me to start categorising the qualities of humans, how we carried elements of a peaceful but passive Uru and an aggressive but active Skeksis, how both were necessary in order to live in the world, and how we had to try and find the right balance in order to progress in a way that allowed all people, no matter their size, no matter their nature, to live their true potential. And for the record, yes, I am one of those people who love the synthesis ending of Mass Effect. You can blame Jim Henson for that. Okay, so uh, I suppose uh, next eldest would be Lauren. Oh, actually, how old are you, Nathan? Uh, 29. Yes, I would be the next eldest. Okay. The Dark Crystal came out in 1982. I was born in 1984. So this movie was very instrumental to my upbringing because I watched a lot of Jim Henson movies growing up, a lot of Muppets, a lot of uh, that kind of puppetry. And The Dark Crystal was a personal favorite of mine, primarily because of how absolutely weird it was. There was always something strange going on in the background there's all kinds of strange little critters running around in darn near every scene and while the story's not terribly deep as far as you know the twists and turns of it goes i was absolutely enthralled by the character design of the skexies and i've this is one of those films where i literally wore out a vhs tape of it <laughs> And there aren't many films I can say that of. I think I own it on like three different physical media at this point. And uh, ever since then, ever since like really watching it, I've had a fondness for very fluffy cats because they always remind me of Fizzgig. (laughs) Uh, Especially my current one who is very loud and likes to roll around on the floor. Um, But I've seen this movie so many times, there are parts of it that are just burned into my brain like the cadence of certain things. I I mean, I was in class uh, last semester and somebody wanted to challenge a a grade that they received and I just went, trial by stone! And they were like... (laughs) They were just like... What? Excuse me? What? (laughs) Dr. Grieve, you are very strange. I'm like, you don't even know the half of it. But just the whole thing, just the the Chamberlain's cadence of... Chamberlain Gelfling friend like the whole thing is just so burned into the reptile part of my brain it's unreal Uh, so yeah I have an incredible fondness for it on like a a deep personal level Uh, Nathan Uh, so I actually didn't see this movie until probably later into my teens the first time and I hadn't watched it since then until we were researching for our uh, episode of our podcast 
So very nearly you got introduced to it at age 25. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you split the difference between when he rewatched it and when he initially watched it, probably oh exactly. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but I grew up on a lot of different fantasy stories, uh, primarily um, the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And this was one of uh, a huge number of different fantasy stories that I was taking in around the same time. Uh, but it still kind of stuck in my brain throughout the intervening years as something that was really compelling and very intricate. And I would always just kind of return to it in my head and, and kind of turn over it. So seeing it again now, a lot of things just sort of flooded back to me in terms of the emotion of it and the structure of it and that mythic power that it has as such a simple story but so honed into this one idea of of unity and and coexistence and that is something that has always sort of struck with me uh, from seeing that movie the first time and then now revisiting it several times in the last few weeks uh, just to to prepare for these episodes it's a really just beautifully constructed and intricately designed story that I think no matter when you see it, it, it stays with you. And uh, I am not 25 yet, so I can't quite be the person who was <laughs> who was introduced at 25, but I was introduced to it at, I think, 20 or 22. Oh, um, close enough, though. Yeah, because my mother uh, was very fond of giving us, like, Disney VHS tapes, but kept the the Black Cauldron and Hunchback as far away from us as possible once she realized that they were dark in any meaningful way. This was very well-intentioned because I was an easily traumatized child, so if she even knew this movie existed, she wouldn't have probably gotten it for me. Uh, but when I did finally get around to watching it, 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 it blew me away. I'm not typically a fantasy person. I've always been a little bit more fond of science fiction i found a lot of fantasy kind of hard to get into i tried to do the lord of the rings thing when i was younger and it was just intimidating for some reason but i completely sank into the dark crystal in a way i'd never really fell into a straight fantasy before it was entirely unique and beautiful and alive in this way that i hadn't ever seen before and I just fell in love with it, and it's quickly become, like, one of my favorite things is Thra and this universe, and it's the first time I've wanted to, like, go get all of the, like, background information and buy all of the comics and read all of the lore, because it's so... It feels so thoughtful. Everything feels there, and that everything has a, like, backstory, and nothing was just... I mean, everything was created, but it feels like... It's all there for a reason. And I just... I just love it. And I'm deeply excited to get to share this when we start a family, like me and Nathan, with our family moving forward. And I don't know. It's just incredible piece of filmmaking. And there's nothing quite like it. So, you know, darkness be buggered. You're going to be like uh, to your kids, listen, this is important. I know you're oh, I think what, it's one year old to- so far. So. <laughs> I think it is healthy for children to be mildly frightened. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Every now and then. I think I would be a lot less skittish as an adult if I'd gotten a few good scares in a little younger. Hmm. You know, I live my life by that, but most parents don't 
don't appreciate it as much, so I, I am, I'm good. Now the Skeksis gather in the sacred chamber, where the crystal hangs above a shaft of air and fire. The Skeksis with their hard and twisted bodies, their harsh and twisted wills. For a thousand years they have ruled, yet now there are only ten. A dying race, ruled by a dying emperor, imprisoned within themselves in a dying land. Today, once more, they gather at the crystal as the first sun climbs to its peak. For this is the way of the Skeksis. As they ravage the land, so too they learn to draw new life from the sun. Today, once more, they will replenish themselves, cheat death again, through the power of their source, their treasure, their fate, the dark crystal. What can you folks tell us about the production of the 1982 Jim Henson movie? It was incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. and deeply, deeply taxing. So the primary creative heads of this film were Jim Henson and Brian Froud. Uh, Brian Froud was the conceptual designer. So he did, he basically invented Thra and all of the characters and what the world looks like and exists like. And Jim handled the story and because he was very like, involved in kind of new age mysticism and world religion he instilled a lot of that into the the like existence of the world on a spiritual level and it started more as a world building experiment before it was a story and i think that kind of shows Hmm. in that it's so mythically focused rather than narratively focused Mm, yeah it's incredibly dense in terms of what is there for the story to happen in front of and I actually think the fact that the the actual narrative element is quite light especially if you are used to fantasy and quest films that kind of balances it out if it was a very dense story it might feel overwhelming because they you'd have so much on all kind of levels yes uh one of the other uh most interesting things I think about the production is they built a lot of the characters around the performers in a way. So the people who were developing the characters visually got one character each that they made. So each of the mystics and Skeksis and Gelflings were made by a single person under a head of like each division. Mm. So there was like a Gelfling division and a Skeksis division and whatnot, but there was individual people working on each puppet like from costume design to facial to everything. Yeah, essentially the like the lead puppeteer for each character got to design that character from the ground up and add their own uh, sort of flavor to it uh, to, to make some of those more fine details themselves and put that into the character. Mm-hmm. And there was also uh, interesting things with creature design, like the Landstriders were invented after 
Jim Henson saw some of the performers practicing on stilts just in the studio, not for anything related to the movie. They were just using their time to practice. And he was like, okay, what if we put you on four of those and then we built a creature around that and see how you can move in that. So that's why Lance Riders exist is because stilts are cool and Jim Henson is crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the work, the performers put in huge amounts of effort in the original film, especially the mystic actors. Uh, Nathan, do you want to go in? Because that was a crazy process. Yeah, the mystics. Uh, so the way those suits are designed, the, the puppetry rigs are designed so that the obviously the mouths are operated by a, a hand in the head and that extends through the arm and then the performer is hunched over in the body of the suit and also operating one of the other four hands with one of their hands while a a second performer is operating the other hands outside the suit but you're also then they're also uh, walking like hunched over sort of crouched on their legs because they're so low to the ground. So it's a very difficult position to perform from. So it's like a twisted and, up pantomime cow. Yeah. And Jim himself, like he would try some of these positions to get a feel for it. So he could get a sense of what the actors were going through. He could only hold that operating position for around five to 10 seconds before it started to feel too much for him. So they had, People who were operating the mystics were like hardcore puppeteers? circus performers, like um, they were contortionists, contortionists, mm. and people who like had very flexible bodies and could hold those kinds of positions. Yes, mm. so they got a lot of people from like mime schools and circuses to do the performances on these because mm. the puppets were so bizarre, essentially. Which would they were really, really enhance the physicality of it all? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. They were kind of inventing techniques as they made the movie because they just sort of had to in order to make these things real. Mm. Yes. Well, th- that would also, if Henson had tried it and couldn't sustain it for very long, I'm guessing that was part of the reason why he was adamant that the costumes had to be uh, built in such a way that people could get in and out of them very quickly so that they could take regular breaks. Yes, that is one of the other major things of the production is that they had a lot of rigs set up just off screen for people to take breaks. Uh, the Gartham suits in particular were like heavy fiberglass things. So they had frames where they would hang themselves up between takes mm. so that the weight of the suits wouldn't be on them anymore mm. because they were so heavy to carry around for long periods of time. Yeah. And the direction, I think, is the other most interesting thing on the production because it was co-directed by Frank Oz and Jim Henson. Because both Frank Oz and Jim Henson are also primary characters in the film. So when one of them was on set, for the most part, the other one was doing the directing. Uh, Jim is, of course, performing uh, Jen. And uh, Frank Oz was the Chamberlain. And I think he did some other minor. He did Agra. He also did Agra. Yes. So he initially Frank Oz did the voice for Augra, but she sounded like Yoda. So they were like, right, we're, we're like, we have to take the bricks out of the briefcase on this one. And they got in Billy Whitlow to, uh, yes. to make her sound like the Augra we know. Yes. Gelfling all dead. Gotham killed them all. Yes, they did. You can't be Gelfling. You look like Gelfling. You understand Gelfling? Because you are Gelfling? I'm looking for Augra. Who sent you? My master, wisest of the Uru. Are you Augra? You're afraid of me? 
think I'm going to eat you? And this is how she finally ended up sounding. A thousand years ago, there was a great conjunction. I was there. Three suns lined up. That's when the crystal cracked. That's when the Skeksis appeared. And the mystics. Another great conjunction coming up. Anything could happen. Whole world might burn up. To put across quite how influential the Dark Crystal was on both Sharon and I, here's a very short clip from Tiger's Eye when Hrau meets the Silent One. Well, that looked impressive, but I didn't hear a word of it. I'm deaf. Oh. You can put your spears away. I don't know your name, so I'm going to call you Mrs. Pointy. So... how do we... But I'm pretty good at working things out by looking at them. I'm guessing you're here about the little one on your back. Put your thumb upwards if I'm right, and down if I'm wrong. Well, thumbs up, but... Put him on the floor, Mrs. Pointy. Let me take a seat and get a look at him. But that wasn't Sharon's original voice for the character. Originally, in a version that never got released, she sounded more like this. I sign at her, gesturing to Miguel and I, then walking with a beckoning paw. Are you crazy? I'm an old woman! I'm not gonna trek days and days north upriver. I sign for question, then run my claw across my throat and point to myself, and then the room around us. By the tits of Rama, you're all over the place with that one. I think you're asking if I was going to kill you. Yes, I was. I ask why with the paw gesture. Because you broke into my house! I live here in the only part of the jungle I can see everyone coming. There's plenty of food, lots of peace, and quiet. The rich, delightful, award-winning tale of Tiger's Eye is available on Bandcamp for $13. And if we get enough requests, I might republish that entire chapter on Patreon with Sharon's original Muppet voice. Tweet at New Century Shore with Muppet Voice Silent One, please. Uh, a lot of the voice stuff was changed uh, post-production because they originally had the Skeksis speaking a made-up language, yeah. and it was just too hard to follow for most people, so yeah. they changed it, which I think was for the best. Yeah, we've, we've, we've sat and watched uh, the uh, scenes play out. They're extremely physically expressive. You can get what's going on, but you're asking a lot from your audience to do that. And ultimately, making them speak in English does characterise them in a very specific way. Mm. And it doesn't... It's not as if the dialogue that they got is particularly extensive and it does come across that English is not their first language and but it's just a few words here and there to kind of direct where your imagination is taking what you're seeing it feels like a a good blend of the of the two exactly I think it's best that they tried to do a different language and then had to dub over what they'd already made because it makes the language stilted as a result in a way that feels very foreign. It feels like this is not how they should be acting. Does the 2019 series 
even exist. Because looking at what they did on paper relative to what's popular now, I don't know how they managed to convince Netflix to give them the money for this thing. Mm. The most high-budget, beautiful-looking puppet show Mm. you will ever see. It is. And the most fascinating element of that for me, uh, having watched a lot of the 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 behind-the-scenes stuff and the making of the Netflix show, is that the, the ideas people approached... Netflix and said we would really like to make an animated Dark Crystal series and the Netflix producers looked at their ideas and decided that if they were going to make something that was Dark Crystal they wanted it to look like the original film. They even made a hybrid test reel where a uh, a CG Gelfling was running around inside the Skeksis palace and came up against a puppet Skeksis mm. who was chasing her around the place. And Netflix looked at that and went, nah, it's not gelling. Give us full puppets, all live action. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. That is the opposite of every other studio story you ever hear about the studios that dismiss stuff that's beautiful and wonderful and crafted and say, it's got to be CG like the Minions. I, I- I'm astonished. I'm astonished as well. I, the only thing, there's only two things I can think of. One, we watched the behind the scenes, and it does seem like there is just a confluence of huge dark crystal nerds working at high levels on Netflix. <laughs> coincidentally, because it's one of those movies that sticks with people. And the other thing can be simplified into three words Game of Thrones. Yeah. Everybody's looking to replace Game of Thrones now that that's over. And Netflix thought, hey, this is fantasy. And the other people have gotten uh, the Golden Compass running, so we have to do hm. something. Yeah, Lord of the Rings is on the way. So Lord of the Rings is on Amazon. But how so... can we possibly compete with such a uh, you know a light, fluffy, fairy tale type thing? Well, thing. we'll fill it with torture and massive themes. But if you yeah. if you approach that from a perspective of rig puppets and live action and everything looking incredibly tangible then it sidesteps the fact that there is a lot of TV that people think of as disposable. Mm-hmm. If it all looks the same and it's all CG, then they can take it or leave it. And they, this gave them something that was incredibly special. I think that another thing that really helped them, I know there was a sequel that was in development for a long time. and Leterio got wanted to work on The Power of the Dark Crystal. Yeah, there was going to be a... They wanted it to be a sequel, but then uh, when they shifted gears to the prequel, there was so much text that had been written about what had happened before the original movie that they it didn't take a whole lot to like work a story in there. And when you can show up to the studio with just reams and reams of this is what happened that we can pull from, it actually feels a lot like like Tolkien, like Lord of the Rings, where there's all of this supporting material that you can bring in. I think that was somewhat helpful in, in pitching it, but also in making it as good as it turned out to be. Mm. Mm. So how do the Skeksis feel as we approach the 2020s? Because when I first saw The Dark Crystal, obviously, they were just this cartoon of evil. And it's like, well, nothing could ever truly be this horrendous. And now it feels like, wow, the Skeksis are the uh, the villains of our time. Mm. For me, I really appreciate 
how utterly pathetic they are. Because when you see them as a kid, yes, they're terrifying, and yes, the fact that they are siphoning out people's essence is disgusting and appalling and the stuff of sheer nightmares. But to be able to look at that and go, but underneath that, they're utterly empty. They're shells. And when you strip out what they are using to keep themselves unnaturally going, they just crumble to dust. And that is actually a a framing of people who do bad stuff that I find personally quite heartening. And I, I have no doubt that there will be lots of people going, oh, but that's so naive and that's not what bad people are really like. I know. I know that. But I need to keep something in mind so that I don't just lie down and not get up again. It's what some bad people are like, some extremely <laughs> prominent bad people. Mm. It's what enough of them are like. Mm. These Mexicans, they're hoarding their essence. They're giving it to their children. They're not giving it to us. So what are we supposed to do? I think that the Skeksis are deeply and unfortunately relevant as villains, especially the way that they've uh, expanded upon them in Age of Resistance, that they had everything under their control and they still crushed people unnecessarily. That they knew the world was falling apart and were hastening that for their own gain. And I was pretty surprised by how political the Age of Resistance ended up feeling. And a large part of that is because the Skeksis just feel like the ruling class in every way that I can think of, except for they're, you know, slightly better looking, I guess, largely. (laughs) (laughs) They exist solely to kind of gather material goods around themselves in a way that their entire identities are wrapped up in the robes that they wear and the ornaments that they carry. And that is the entire signifier of what they are. And so when you take that away, there is nothing underneath it. And I think that's a really interesting framing of like wealth and power and the pursuit of power, that it is ultimately something that is empty. It is just visual. It is not substantial. And especially in comparison to the mystics, who are not very material at all and exist in a state of almost almost ephemeral state where they just disappear as opposed to crumbling into dust when they die. I got that very much from uh, watching it again today. The, the mystics seem to be almost all soul with a very little bit of physicality to keep them tied to the world. So on their death, they just disappear like Yoda and Mm -hmm. the Skeksis are no soul whatsoever so when they die there's nothing to sustain the frame that was that they were keeping going so it just crumbles the the, uh, mystics are essentially the Skeksis daemons and they're not getting along very well Mm. Mm. nice 
They uh, the Skeksis are clad in these uh, um, ridiculous, almost Elizabethan style. I was going to say Regency, but it's more like uh, the the sixteenth century, uh, so um, pre King James Bible. Yeah, you know, with these great big ruffs Birds and the that sort have of swallowed plates. Yeah, threadbare silk sleeves. Originally, the costume designer made these rich, sumptuous gowns that Henson and company went, right, we're going to have to distress these and make them look a thousand years old, which they did. So then they become skeletal, like the bones of clothing mm. that just sort of hanging on these carrion birds. Well, the thing is, by the time the, the, the period of the film rolls around, the, the whole point of wearing rich clothing is to is so that... People who are poorer than you, when they see you, know that you're better than them. Mm. There isn't anybody to observe that you're better than them. You've eaten them. You've eaten them all. (laughs) Visually speaking, they they, uh, key into... So, you know, part of what the super wealthy do, which is to maintain that they are relevant and point out things that happened long, long, long ago, you know, way before uh, um, most of us were born, and... You know, they were relevant then, so they must be relevant now. And they clothe themselves in these fabrications of important deeds. And they're just gossamer thin when we look at them uh, under a microscope now. Mm. Well, what they desperately need everybody in the world to believe is that the world is a better place with them in it and with them maintaining the fortunes that they've always had. And that's just not true. (laughs) And I think it's very telling that they all go by their jobs, essentially. The mm. scientists on the ornamentalist, which is literally just the one that designs all their garments, mm. being on the same level as someone like the Chamberlain or the or the scientist or the scroll keeper, uh, I think is very telling. The What I love uh, now that we have the show to compare them to, the movie ones feel so much more desiccated and so much more ancient, mm. having seen their evil to its ultimate end, uh, that it's it's even better somehow in, in retrospect. Because without anything to compare it to at the time, I just thought they were really fabulously designed <laughs> enemy, like, like, like villainous-type creatures. Um, and now that you see that they're all practically based off of real-life characters and not literally, but, boy, you could really see a lot of parallels. Uh, But also seeing them kind of at the height of their power as opposed to at the end of it is just... I love that contrast so very much. But you can still see the ones that are there. Uh, I went back and... So after finishing the last episode of Age of Resistance, I went back and we scrabbled through the movie picking out like okay in this scene there's the gourmand there's the ornamentalist there like you could pick out even these these like secondary skexies because they they were able to maintain their silhouette they were able to maintain their their finery in a way for the show so you could really tie them to each other there's uh like they made the original film look as splendid as they possibly could but there is a lack of luster after you've watched Age of Resistance, which signifies that Age of Resistance is one of the most gorgeous shows you will ever see. The Just the external shots of nature, like, you know, real mountainsides, are jaw-dropping, and it feels like watching a documentary of what happens on the planet of Thra. 
And, you know, all of this plant life and all of this animal life is, is alive and around the Gelflings and moving. And the Gelflings are mostly one with nature. And uh, it feels like the planet is at least balanced here. So it filled me while watching it with horrendous trepidation, much like uh, watching episode three for the first time of uh, Star Wars, just going, this is all going to end. This is all going to be horrid. I am terrified of what's going to happen. Please don't make it too terrible. I don't want to see these characters that I love die. And honestly, I kind of disengaged with the show a little bit because the characters became so lovable. I'm like, I don't want to see this person suffer. I don't want to see this person die. So at the end... Very few of them die, although a couple ha- are taken out along the way, and it doesn't have that massacre that that I was dreading. And as a result, I think the show is stronger for it, though it does leave you kind of hanging on tenterhooks, and there is, there's some deliberate um, dissatisfying beats at the end, which I think are sort of key into the fact that this is not going to go happily mm. afterwards. Yeah. I think I really appreciated that, though, because it did make it feel a bit like when you study history, you don't study it in a continuous line. You look at it in chunks. You see this portion of time and you can see the the kind of seeds of something that might then manifest in about 50 years, but you don't necessarily follow it all the way up to the join. But then when you watch the uh, film afterwards, it feels like you're watching kind of the skeleton with the faded clothing mm. of, uh, of the original yeah, it's series. Like we came back several decades later and it had all gone to yeah. shit. Very significantly, there's a, a huge difference between the sort of the, the lush countryside surrounding the Skeksis castle, which is a desert in the film, mm. until the end when it is restored to the countryside. And that had so much more meaning now that we'd seen what it was before. Mm. I find that there's a lot of things in the movie that gain a lot of meaning because of the show. I actually almost didn't watch this show originally because I watched the first episode and felt myself really appreciating the characters so much that I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, I know where this is going to end. I can't can't do this myself. Yeah, and the only reason I actually did watch the whole thing was because you said, hey, do you want to be on the show? Because I heard you watch The Dark Crystal 300,000 times. I said, yo, dog, we heard you like The Dark Crystal. (laughs) Yeah, We got Dark Crystals inside your Dark Crystals. (laughs) Actually, I believe your exact words were, Sharon, if she's only seen it 300,000 times, should we allow such a noob to be on (laughs) the show? That's a direct quote. Um... But, uh, but yeah, so I, I'm really glad that I ended up watching through the whole thing because even with the trials and tribulations of the various characters that you really come to feel for, there are so many good themes and moments and stories throughout it. And in the end, it left a couple of questions as to how or if it was going to tie into the movie exactly. Mm. And that I watched it with my partner, I should also say. So we had a lot of back and forth as to whether or not this was even, is this like an alternate timeline? Did something I thought the same this? thing. I thought that there's a big battle at the end of just a foot battle between the Gelflings and the Skeksis. And I expected that, like, there's a possibility that they'll just kill the Skeksis. And then Augur will tell up and go, and go, well done. Kill the Skeksis, yeah. you did. In other timelines, you didn't. Bad things happened. <laughs> I- <laughs> On 
that, I'm sorry, on that note, though, the, the specific thing was Skekvar, the, the general, because mm. my partner and I had remembered that that was the general from the movie yeah. that battled the Chamberlain for the emperor position. The Gotham and, Keeper. Well, that was the, well, but they always refer to him as the general mm-hmm. in the movie. And then going back, they even have a very similar visual representation, but they are different characters. Yeah, they kept the um, general that we know from the movie very much to the side in the camera, just to uh, to keep that one uh, separated. That's actually one of the things that I found interesting about that it illuminates how the Skeksis act is that they're partially entirely replaceable to one another. The general dies, and so they just give that title to the guy over there who's also kind of big and strong. The gold <laughs> man now falls they're... down under to a pit, we'll just get another Skeksis well fed. Yeah, it's just they don't matter to one another in any meaningful way. Mm. Which, which is kind of builds bad. on that element of them referring to themselves by their job titles, effectively, by what they do, not who they are. I think there are two very important exceptions to that, though, because the Chamberlain really doesn't – like, no other Skeksy has the same grasp of manipulation like the Chamberlain does. And I don't think if the Chamberlain was killed that they would just replace the Chamberlain with somebody else. And the scientist is very distinctly somebody who has skills and abilities beyond uh, – the others and in the show my goodness they really kick him around when he's the one he's the reason that and they have so much of what they they have mm. yeah. i got the feeling that that was in part because his experiments and his disregard for life frankly terrifies even them mm. the skeksis are cowards mm. that's a primary characteristic that we haven't necessarily brought up they are weak cowardly little beings who pretend to be very strong as soon as they know they can be hurt they are clucking around like chickens with their heads cut off they are (laughs) terrified little beings i think the one exception to that and one of the most interesting things they added to the show the hunter uh is the hunter yeah Yeah. he's essentially the only skexis that we see uh, the only Skeksis we see kind of operating in his prime, in a sense, like all the rest of them, they just kind of laze around the castle and they don't really do all that much. But uh, the hunter, Skekmal, is out in the world and like aggressively doing things to like further their power outside of the political elements that all of these other Skeksis are doing in the castle. And that's really interesting. And, like, in his design, he's very interesting as well. Yes, he's the only one who has full use of all four of his arms, which is an element you can see in the first movie when the Chamberlain has his clothes ripped off, is that the Skeksis also have tiny little arms on their backs, like the Mystics. It's just that none of them can use them, except for the Hunter. Yeah, they, they have atrophied in their, in their uh, time being in the castle and just existing in this opulence without exercising their their physical forms really Mm. although here's an interesting little production note as to why they have four arms uh jim henson had looked at some of brian froud's work on his trolls and um fairy books that he'd been drawing and writing for years and wanted to use some of those designs but there was a, a froud was a bit 
iffy about the copyright that if he let Henson use them as they were, then he would lose the copyright on them for the future. So he added extra arms to make them look a bit different. Yeah, mainly to the uh, uh, mystics who had uh, more prominent uh, extra arms, but there was a commonality there. The Skeksis have got these withered little arms on their backs. But, uh, yeah, the, the hunter moves about with incredible ferocity. He's actually kind of like the predator. He's, he's got this kind of, like, watch out, he's out there. So when he moved into attack during those uh, episodes where uh, Rian's with his uh, father, that actually got really threatening. Um, there's one other bit of uh, uh, weird throwaway production notes. Brian Froud mentioned, oh, yeah, it was uh, supposed to be a dark chrysalis, but I misheard it and changed it into a dark crystal. And it's like... That's a pretty crucial conjecture. And at no point did Jim go, oh, wait a second, what is this, the uh, uh, dark crystal? I said chrysalis. Um, but there you go, that's, that's what it was originally going to be. And so there is a reference to a chrysalis in this, kind of hearkening back to that original design choice. I mean, it does make, it, it weirdly connects to the Gelfling, who are, they have insect wings. Yeah. They're somewhat insectoid in design which honestly kind of reminds me of the homestuck trolls which are also an insectoid species with wings when they're fully developed but that's my particular nerdism coming out <laughs> the extra arms kind of give a bit of an insecty feel to the uh, the skexis and the mystics as well so maybe that's the oh my god maybe that's the thing of of thra that the uh, all the life on there has evolved from intelligent insects rather than mammals and plants. Uh, the podlings are specifically based on potatoes. Yes. So they were going to have a bunch of eyes. They were going to have like five eyes each, uh, but then it became apparent that they it wasn't clear where they were looking, so uh, they were forced to knock it back down to two eyes. <laughs> and well done that they did. Uh, so let's talk about characters. And since there are so many, we don't actually have time to talk about every single Gelfling, every single Podling, every single Skeksis, uh, every single Mystic. So I'm just going to ask each of our guests, uh, Netflix series and movie, uh, who their favorite character is. And we will go around the table. Then if there's time, we will talk about our second favorite and maybe even our third favorite for another two rounds. Let's start with Lauren. Oh, good, because I get to choose Deet, because Deet is the best. Oh, I was going to go with Deet. Deet is it's, awesome. Deet everybody's favorite. The entire time I was watching this, and I'm like, I really like Deet. I really want to be like Deet. I'm actually Briar, but I really like Deet. <laughs> and it's just the whole time. But Deet is so perfect. She's kind of the heart and soul of the entire movie or the entire show as far as I'm concerned since so much of Thra is supposed to be like the animals and the plants all living together in this kind of harmony where you go back to Thra and Deed is the one that is most connected to that I think mainly because the Grottens are primarily separated from the rest of society unlike the rest of the tribes and the you know Skeksis and the rest so they have the opportunity to be a little bit more down to earth if you will and uh, just Deet is so gentle and so loving and so friendly. And, oh, the things that they do to her by the end are just gut-wrenching. I, I want to see where they're going to take that character so very much. But she always had good surprises. And I loved 
everything about her from the way she acted to her character design, just everything. There was something very specific about the wind in the uh, 2019 production. There are things you can do to make your effectively not real creations seem more real. This is why we, we mentioned when we covered Godzilla 2, King of the Monsters, complaints about, you know, why are we having them uh, in the dark, in the rain? Uh, because they're, you know, if they're in the dark and if there's the right light sources, light can play off their bodies. If it's in the rain, rain can play off their bodies. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're dealing with CG. When you're dealing with Muppets out there in the studio and you want to make it seem like they really are real you can have them interact with wind and the amount of times that just someone's hair will blow a little in the breeze that that happened with deep more than anyone else i think because i think they were just trying to signify repeatedly she is one with nature mm. she's she the only so much time outside yeah as well. she's the only um Gelfling I can think of who has very green skin and those much darker eyes suggest that she's kind of slightly more connected to the uh, planet than the rest of them and and slightly less refined and uh, able to do the gentry things Uh, and uh, just the amount of little touches in the uh, in the Netflix show that made us believe that these well not just that these puppets were real Someone said that uh, there, there is. It doesn't matter how great a Pixar creation is. You know that you couldn't stand in a room with it and talk to it because it would have to be animated carefully, and Tom Hanks would have to provide Woody's voice and blah 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 blah. But you can talk to a Gelfling puppet, and they would emote and act exactly like their character if they've got the puppeteer behind them. And I suppose uh, they'd also have to have. Um, the the person doing the voice acting because there's a two person two sometimes three uh, person um, tandem to actually bring that character here but it's happening live it's a practical effect and the Dark Crystal was one of these pioneering films which uh, made creature effects leap forward in a way that I don't think most people really appreciate it made these creatures happen in real time much like Star Wars, but Star Wars upped its game around Empire and then Jedi and it, you know, we then got Willow and a whole bunch of other fantastic movies in the 80s where things became that much more tangible. And then by the tail end of the 90s, it began to come away from this practical effects and, and more towards let's see if we can create something entirely out of computers so seeing us come back here and actually now be standing at the top of the ladder of practical effects, whilst at the same time effectively using techniques from decades, even a hundred or so years ago, even a thousand years ago in terms of actually bringing puppets to life, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, marionettes are one of the oldest forms of telling stories. It's a magic that is very difficult to synthesize. Do you mean do you mean that most sacred of arts, puppetry? <laughs> I went to puppet camp. <laughs> the thing it reminded me and Nathan of that we've discussed a little bit watching the behind the scenes features was Leica's animation yeah. of stop motion, how detailed and physical all their work is. And while they're willing to and definitely 
pioneering a lot of digital effects to go along with that, they always base it in something real so that it feels tangible no matter what. And a lot of the people doing work on this clearly have the same mentality of physicality first. Since Lauren picked Deet, I'm going to go with Deet's buddy, Hup, uh, one of my favorite characters, who turns up and sort of like swoops. He's a podling, so he's this little guy, and he seems to be speaking in this podling gibberish, uh, and he also seems Italian at times, and uh, he seems very fierce and then fiercely protective, and he has this big wooden spoon which defines him as his character. And I was like, oh, this is great. we got a Samwise Gamgee. And I, I really liked Hup. And then there's that point where Hop says, I, I can't do this, I'm just a little guy. You know, Hop's useless. And he talks about himself in the third person and is so crestfallen, my heart broke watching this little guy accept that he was a nothing in this massive cosmic war going on. And just her deep being able to build him back up from that was one of the my favourite moments of 2019. I Hop is fantastic and not just because the interplay with deet but i love it because my partner uh, really likes hup and just every once in a while i'll grab a spoon and go paladin and i just <laughs> i'm so entertained and at the at the end very much I'm really, a sancho by the way uh, for, i'm really looking yeah. forward to the spin-off uh buddy cop of lore and hup um <laughs> every time as soon as hup came on screen, my first reaction was uh, that Brooklyn Nine-Nine meme. I've only had Hup for one and a half days, but if anything happens to him, I will kill everyone in this room and then myself. <laughs> <laughs> Who said I that am... in Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah, that's a, it's a, uh, oh my god, it's when Rosa, Rosa gets the puppy. Yeah, that's it. It's a really good puppy. But Stephanie Beatrice. I am 100% Hup protection squad. I love Hup. I weren't already engaged, I would marry Hub. <laughs> it's the it's Sorry, the, it's the incredible loyalty <laughs> and the um the the refusal to look reality in the face, but at the same time just uh and being able to set himself to his task that is admirable. Mm, yeah. It's like I said, there's a heavy Samwise Gamgee uh rose from Star Wars uh, energy there. <laughs> uh okay, so next person Sharon? I think I'm going to go with, it's so tempting to just say Augra, but I've kind of already said what I love about Augra. Um, from the series, it's got to be Brea, mainly because this is entirely self-interested. Brea is me. Brea is me if I didn't, if I had no cares in the world and had grown up from my early child this is how I see the world everything can be interpreted and learned through books and all I want to do is spend my entire life in this library which has more books than I could possibly read in my lifetime <laughs> I was hypnotized by the way that Brer is introduced and you're sort of like moving the camera through these teetering piles of books in the library mm. and there's one point you go through an archway of these stacks of books that have just sort of uh, um, leaned onto each other and I turned to you just to see your jaw on the floor and went is that where you'd love to live and you went yep yeah. i wouldn't leave <laughs> i would never leave the library this is so true but yeah i i think if i was at my at my most core and natural self i'm brea and honestly that goes that includes her obliviousness about the outside world the fact that so much goes on 
that she is totally unaware of and that she's willing to accept the Skeksis because they're offering knowledge and support, or at least she's perceiving it as support. And there was a part of me... Bear going, in mind, she's part of the royal family, so they, the Skeksis so, butter her yeah, and her sisters so, so up. so far, she's, she's had relatively positive interactions with them. But when she sat in that coach with the... Uh, the Scrollkeeper? Yeah, with the Scrollkeeper, part of me was just wanting to scream, but just look at him! Just look at him! He's terrifying! What? Even, but because he's got books, you, you're with him. And then I thought, yeah, I'd do that. I'd totally do that. <laughs> <laughs> the coach that is, by the way, literally powered by small animals, that are like giant weevils that have to be the wheels. Yeah, and it, Wonderful well, the, design. The, the main body of the coach is some big insectoid, like, snail thing that's Shell, been hollowed yeah. out. There's, there's just so much in the in the design of how... The Skeksis are living, and it's it's kind of, in part, it makes it feel like they are at one with the Earth like everybody else is because they're using the resources that are available to them. But then you look at how they're using them and the, the kind of twisted way that they're, they're taking something and not even concealing the fact that they are electrocuting weevils in order to get from A to B. Mackenzie? I think I might jump back to the movie actually because mm-hmm. i think my favorite characters from the series have been covered and i think i'm going to talk about kira actually please do who uh, i looked we watched it just this morning right before we started recording and she does have a lot in common with deet actually she's got a lot of that same connection to nature and energy and willingness to get into fights when necessary mm-hmm. which jen is totally not up to kira is in my opinion, far more the protagonist of that movie in the sense that she's the one who actually accomplishes things. She's the one who makes the sacrifices and goes forward, and she's incredibly brave and chooses to be brave. She wasn't a chosen one. She wasn't sent on a journey by some kind of mystical being. She met someone and saw that they needed help and saw that there was something she could do to help the world and her adopted family. And she does something and it's very inspiring in a way. And she's also just adorable in a million different little moments. Her relationship with the podlings is so pure and genuine and how she makes Jen a million times more interesting just with her proximity and, I don't know. There's something about Kira that really speaks out to me. And it's, I haven't gotten around to getting to the uh, post-movie secondary material like the comics and books yet. But I know that as the only female Gelfling left in society, she's going to basically become the next queen of sorts. And that's an interesting position that I'm, I'm going to read more about and see see how she fits into that. One of the uh, most beautiful elements of the book, which we read um, a couple of weeks ago... The novelisation written back in 1982. Yeah, the novelisation, which, yep. which expands a lot on um, much of the story elements that kind of had to be stripped away a little bit to make the film work. Um, but the, the point where Kira is 
being drained. In the film, it's slightly different. Augra tells her to call to the animals, and it's the process of doing that that frees her. The animals <clears throat> get loose and, and kind of upset everything, and, and she gets away in the, the chaos. Uh, but in the book, what happens is Kira keeps herself conscious, keeps herself there through sheer force of anger. She basically realises that only strong emotion is going to keep her in her own mind. So she kind of evokes that very deliberately to keep herself from draining away. And then she goes and, uh, and speaks to the animals and it explains that the reason that works the way it does is because talking to them in their own language reminds them who they are because the scientist has had them all locked up for so long that they're all exhausted and depressed and unable to fight anymore because they've been so badly treated. And her talking to them in their own voices allows them to find themselves in the core of themselves and she brings a lot of the drained podlings back the same way she speaks to them in podling language and it reminds them that they are podlings not these drained creatures that the um, the skexis have been using and i just I, the idea of that was so beautiful and that's gorgeous and you can tell even in the movie that she's got this kind of energy within her this capability to do great things and mm. she's probably the most interesting character besides maybe the chamberlain in the original film i saw a production note somewhere that kira's original name was d d-e-e mm-hmm. and maybe maybe that's the thing i don't know they never make it clear what the lineage is and who's the father and who's the mother of uh jen and kira which i might be a good thing in the long run if this is all we ever get and i suppose it can be less put together in comic books uh otherwise but uh it did feel like uh if anyone is kira's mother it's um deet which is triply tragic because we know how she ends yeah i actually this morning went back and uh, watch the dream fast scene again, just specifically to see, because I know you can see Kira's mother for a brief moment. And we were like comparing the facial features with the different main characters and Kira's mother in the movie. And of course, like whatever looks, has a lot more facial features in common with Briya than Deet, mm-hmm. but Kira herself has a lot more characteristics in common with Deet. So even down to the green streaks in her hair, which I only noticed in the 4K viewing yesterday. Mm. Mm. Do we 100% know how Gelflings reproduce? Because Deet has two dads. Maybe uh, Kira has two moms. You know, you know, Brian and Deet, they they had kind of the love triangle thing going on there. Mm. And I mean, the whole time after we found out that Deet had two fathers, I just kept saying, make it gay or cowards. So (laughs) it's the correct way to end love triangles is one of two ways, the gay way or everybody ends up together in a happy triad. Absolutely. I always say that. Good. Oh, I never if you're get my Stephanie way. Meyer, the the dog dates the baby. <laughs> Moving yeah, swiftly I could go on. on about Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> also, the dog dates the baby is a lazy way. It is lazy. Come on, she had that whole scene in the tent on the mountain and just chop, didn't have chop, the strength dig, to carry dig, it through. Chop, chop. Okay, Nathan, uh, favorite <laughs> character that we haven't already named. 
All right. Uh, I'm going to jump back to the series, mm. and <clears throat> I want to talk about Skekgra or the Heretic. Yes. Because I think he is really important for the thematics of the show and the movie. Uh, so he is a exiled Skeksis who lives Skeksis in the Crystal food. Desert. And he is working with his mystic counterpart to essentially help to orchestrate the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy. And what's really interesting about him is that we've never seen a Skeksis really show any kind of moral goodness. Yeah. Like, they're all very slimy, and their predilection seems to almost entirely be towards evil. And yet we have one here who is working against the other Skeksis, but also working selflessly to essentially bring about the end of his own, like, individual existence, ultimately. And he's also just a great character. He's very funny. He's voiced by Andy Samberg, and that performance is just amazing. Uh, his design puppet, is he, great. Is, he puts on a puppet show with puppets. So yeah, puppets within puppets. That scene is amazing, <laughs> and I love it. Literally, before we started that episode, we had a discussion about whether or not they had a theater in Thra, like what arts they had, and then they, we watched that episode like ten minutes afterwards, and like, oh, they have puppetry and opera now. Great, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do, and we know they have tapestries and murals. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Continue. and also just the idea that um, that a Skeksis and a mystic found one another and decided to try like coexisting as these separate entities that is has real interesting implications for the overall mythology that like at any time they could just work together there's nothing really stopping them except for the passivity of the mystics and the just like sheer ambition of the skexies to rule everything for the uninitiated, uh, each Skeksis has a counterpart uh, among the mystics. So when one of them dies, the other one also disappears. So it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship that has been effectively cut off. They are separate and estranged from each other. Mm, yeah. And the, uh, at the start of the film, there are ten of each left and one of each is about to die. And... I believe that they may have started with 12. I believe it's 18, they say in the show. Oh, Oh, nice. Okay. It's around 18 or 20, depending on uh, if you're including some of the comics, there was like two who died almost immediately after the separations because they freaked out and choked out their own mystics. Idiots. (laughs) (laughs) That seems very Skeksis to me. It does, kind of, doesn't it? Yeah. But I was thinking at least one of them has to have gone uh, fairly recently because the hunter wears a Skeksis skull as a helmet. (laughs) I did notice Mm -hmm. that, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, he kept it. It's like, that one's mine. That's Finchie from the British version of The Office, by the way. Uh, The the guy who was in The Witch. Uh, He's got a Mm -hmm. genuinely terrifying voice. Mm. He's also one of the Caros in Harry Potter Potter and the Deathly Hallows, yeah. Ralph Innocent. Ralph Innocent, thank you. 
I think it's important to mention, actually, I, I wanted to say this since we're talking about the Skeksis voice actors, all the voice actors that I recognized immediately were Skeksis, mm. except for the storyteller at the very, very, very beginning, because I was like, that's Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, you know, Jason Isaac, Simon Pegg, Benedict Wong, Mark Hamill, like the Andy cost Sandberg, on this thing, my God. <laughs> It's insane, but all of the people that I recognize, because looking at the names for the Gelflings, I didn't recognize that one of the characters from the Sifa clan was Eddie Izzard. I didn't realize that Madra Mehran was Helena Bottom Carter, hmm. but like, I don't recognize the vast majority of the rest of these names, but the characters, like, you listen to Mark Hamill playing Skektek, the scientist, and you're just like, that's that's the Joker with, like, a little extra, like, a little extra <laughs> English on it. Um, and somehow, uh, Simon Pegg nails the Chamberlain's voice, oh, he's like, chameleon. so well. He's so good. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. Mm, so, have peace, Yes. Peace, yes? Chamberlain, friend of Gelfling. Hmm. Um, He's been trying the, the same trick for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I find that so, like, that has to have been some, somehow deliberate, right? Where the, the biggest name actors are also the ones playing the bad guys. I, I don't know what for what purpose, if that's supposed to draw some kind of parallel to, like, the different classes or whatever but or if it's just the idea of like well i can't dislike this character he sounds like mark hamill but <laughs> i do I don't think know. there's there's possibly an element of evoking delight in watching the villains be villainous to yeah each they're other. pantomime villains rather yeah. than just so horrendous you want them to get off the screen joker absolutely and the uh, that's that's part of the point of pantomime your your most well-known actor will usually be playing the big over-the-top villain Mm. so that when they walk on stage everybody goes hey so they got seven or eight of these yeah yeah exactly including aquafina as the collector the the one that was like so what happens to her slash them because uh they apparently they, they identify as whatever they wish Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it just occurred to me, perhaps that is intentional to make the Skeksis feel more alien to the world, mm. because there's like an automatic connection that you draw in your head whenever you're hearing some of these voices, while all of the other characters, even if they're a person whose voice you would normally recognize, they're masked in some way, so it's not immediately obvious. So all the Gelflings feel like they are from Thra, but then some of the Skeksis are like, well, yeah, this is the Skeksis, but also I can hear where that voice is coming from, so it feels even like a little bit more out of place since they themselves are aliens to the world. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Maybe something in that. Um, also, actually, speaking about the collector, she she's the one with the giant bubos dripping pus. There were times when I was like, right, I get that you've seen Dead Alive, which is brain dead in the UK and uh, New Zealand. That's great. But I'm trying to eat my dinner here. Good God, the amount of pus coming out of this creature. Like I, after that, like that one episode where they went crazy over the top, they kind of uh, they, they eased back on it. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was that was quite spectacular. But it does 
quite importantly contribute to that sense that they are all rotting, ill, and there's something is not right about mm. the way they are. Well, she never mentions the fact that she's got these disgusting things just bursting off of her. She's like, I need yeah, to see you, you a talk doctor. About, you talk about the the. Um, the aesthetic being sort of very Elizabethan and, and Regency period, and that's exactly what was going on then. Yeah. You know, lead paint an inch thick to cover up the fact that everybody had syphilis sores all over them. Yep. Meanwhile, they're all suffocating. Yep. Next character. Can I jump jump in on this one because we were just talking about him, and I, I, I wanted to like to get this one early. I'll snag the Chamberlain because I, I my favourite Transformer apart from Optimus Prime and Bumblebee is Starscream, and this character is pre Starscream. But he's so Starscream. Everything about him is this sort of, um, you know, I'm going to ingratiate you with everything you want to hear whilst hiding a knife behind my back. Well, he's called the Chamberlain. He might as well have been called the Royal Vizier. Mm. But when you watch the original film as a kid, because he gets cast out, when he approaches the Gelflings, you actually want to believe him because the Gelflings are the proxies for us, the viewer. You want this Chamberlain to have seen that the other Skeksis are horrendous and that, that maybe there is something in this prophecy and maybe that, they, that if he helps the Gelflings, things will actually get better and you want to believe him so that when he then turns and goes ah! near, nearer the end, you're like, ah, I am double betrayed. Uh, but at the same time, Simon Pegg and the uh, the puppeteers for uh, the, the the Chamberlain really maintain that character in this. Like he was always this kind of slimy, skullduggerous uh, Jafar type. The, just the, just the because if you remember the in the, in the film he barely says anything for the first few acts. He's just saying mmm a lot, mm. and then when he talks, it's to the Gelflings. So uh, he's kind of summarised by this one sound and this sly turn of his head as he's looking at things and just his actions when he's sort of hanging balefully over the dying emperor in his bed and looking really threatening but at the same time not moving into attack just just waiting biding his time and that sound as well if you think about that in a political context or a discussion context or in any context where there's strong personalities going around and somebody who is aware of the fact that they could easily be crushed by said strong personalities that is a noise that suggests I'm considering what you say very, very carefully. I'm not entirely disagreeing. I'm not entirely agreeing. I'm going to sit here on the fence and maybe make a decision later on it's when also, you're dead. Oh, look at this little tidbit I have found. Mm, yeah, it's a it's a way of making himself seem unthreatening. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to the general who bulldozes his way through his life, either the 2019 general or the 1982 general, they're both basically the same guy. <laughs> uh, I think the Chamberlain just has a little bit of an up on Starscream in that he does seem slightly more capable, at least than the original Starscream. Just a little yeah. bit more capable of actually doing things. Starscream is so... Uh, Iago levels of uh, ambitious, he will scupper himself. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so next person to choose, I believe, uh, Lauren? Yeah. Well, just to add on to the Chamberlain, I love the fact that he's so... He has a, a very specific silhouette, and while you know he is evil and manipulative, he's so fascinating. I loved seeing him do things, especially when he was backstabbing the other Skeksis, because that, you know, that's at least somewhat morally gray, I guess, because they were doing horrible things. Like, so, sure, that's how the scientist got his eye removed. That's good to know. Wow, the Chamberlain is manipulative. Like... I just I love that. I loved seeing him on screen, even though I wasn't didn't want to exactly root for him. But as for the char- next character I want to talk about, I'm going to, I guess, go like a, a sharp left turn, and I'm going to actually choose the ascendancy because I so adored the representation of an insectile hive mind in this way, where it starts out where the spitters are just this threat that really make you think of the Gotham or Gotham Gotham. Yeah. That from the, the movie where you're saying, okay, well somehow these things are going to be turned into that at some point and lo and behold, they are, but they start out as this seemingly mindless monster like attacks Deet. Hup gets to save Deet from it in the most podling way possible. And then you see them here or there, and it's not a big deal. But then when the Skeksis go and speak to the Ascendancy, and they make faces, it reminds me of the Helping Hands from Labyrinth, Mm. which is another movie. It's another movie I watched endlessly as a kid. And the idea of having this hive mind that is run by all these different kinds of beasts, because you've got the the threaders and the spitters and uh, goodness knows what else. And then in the end, they're not evil. They specifically align with the Gelflings. They uh, actually like help out. They're there at the final battle. That that alliance ends up being the thing that Agra did not see coming. And the, I'm just a sucker for hive mind entities that are specifically also not evil. And the, uh, the way that Tavra specifically was handled with it, I find just utterly fascinating because after all, since Tavra and the thread, the ascendancy didn't know where one began and the other one ended when Tavra died and that threader jumped off, I wonder if we're going to see Tavra again in spitter form or something, oh, like when that, that thing grows up. Yeah, It's so neat. Like, it, there's something about that that feels even more alien to our existence and our understanding, but is also an entity that you can speak to and has motivations and has feelings and isn't evil. And I love that. And then Gurgen uh, gives one of them a big hug at the end, and... I cheered. It was great. And it also that that what you were talking about there with Tavra that occurred to me as well and it's kind of a an echo of what has sort of already been established as to how uh, the spirituality of Thra works, which is that everything is connected through the roots. Everything is a part of everything else. And that that's why it's so important that the Uh, the Skeksis be prevented from doing what they're doing because they are not part of all this. They are not part of Thra. They've thrown off that balance Mm -hmm. that all things are a part of. And 
nothing is inherently evil. The gobbles, the fizzgigs, the ascendancy, the gauflings, the podlings, none of them are inherently evil. And I just that made me so happy to see. And and it was handled in a way that I just don't see very often. Yeah. Effectively, even, with the uh, Urskex being visitors yeah. to this planet and yeah. leaving behind the Skeksis uh, or, or splitting up and, and forming the Skeksis, that's it. That's the thing that's underneath Derry mm. that's, that's preying upon everyone yeah. and is becoming this consuming vampiric presence on the planet. But even... And won't leave. Even the yeah. Skeksis themselves, if you, if you kind of step back far enough and look at the bigger picture, they are not inherently evil. They are, they've, they've been cut away from all of themselves that is good, that's pure, that's, uh, that's spiritual and wise and, and healthy, and that's why their behaviour is... Their behaviour is evil, but the, the presence, particularly in the series, the presence of the heretic being able to uh, to manifest behaviour mm. which is not evil suggests that that is not that they can feasibly the basic learn. nature of the skeptics. What you're describing yeah. is a Frankenstein story that mm. the mystics were the uh, well that the Urskex themselves were Victor mm. creating these two versions of themselves, and then the mystics. You know, did the Victor thing of washing their hands of the situation and going and living elsewhere on an allotment. And uh, the, the Skeksis were the monster left to ravage the world. Mm. Specifically, the Skeksis also have power, and that power is corruptive. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that the series lightly does that I appreciate it is uh, it does kind of blame the myth, not blame the mystics, but it doesn't frame the mystics as an inherently good force they're gentle and they're peaceful and they don't hurt anybody but they're not doing anything to help they're hiding and passive to a detrimental point so neither the skeksis or the mystics are good forces for thra Mm. they are at best neutral and at worst deeply destructive yeah i I did say at one point actually if the if the uh, mystics really were good and still possessed any ability to act then really they should just line up on a cliff and all jump off <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, taking the skeksis out of the well, equation absolutely yeah one of them does so yeah the, uh, the that leads to the only two uh, uh mystic and skeksis who are actually helping are the heretic and uh, his or their opposite the wanderer the, the wanderer who are effectively exiles but they do help things along mm. Mm-hmm. I, so the Skeksis or the uh, the mystics are essentially apathetic, like hippies in a sense, and all the Skeksis are colonialist landlord class. So mm-hmm. eh, it's kind of evil, but a different kind of evil, a very understandable kind of evil. We're all boomers. Ah, <laughs> uh, boomers. <laughs> so the the uh, uh, mystics are good men doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. it's like you know that's that's not our problem actually. You know, we're just we're just going to go over here. We're going to post some some minions memes on our local Facebook chat, <laughs> and uh, the Skeksis are going to just they have the power and the privilege, so they're going to uh, split all the Gelflings into the different tribes, really reinforce that tribalism to play on their fears. And oh, by the way, we also own this land now that you've lived on forever, and you should pay us to live here still. So yeah. 
Lauren, it's, it's, did it's we totally learn nothing not from the 300 podcast? We've got oh, to Jesus. stop getting political. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't realize that the, those rules were still in effect, Alex. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, you can't it's, have ever have me on again if that's <laughs> <laughs> Also, um, if, if we're, this is going to be apolitical, then somebody needs to talk to the makers of the uh, Dark Crystal yeah, TV show. They go out of their way to make <laughs> it. Look, this is what happened. That Okay, very specifically with uh, Brea's sister, uh, Celadon. Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, dresses herself as a Skeksis and, you know, is the other princess. And she's like, well, if we help the Skeksis, then, of course, our masters will be uh, merciful and grateful to us and we'll be rewarded. And, uh, you know, she effectively acts like a quizling, someone who is in- indebted to. And I think Lyra actually pulled up Stockholm Syndrome the other day, as in uh, she pulled that out of thin air. I was like, that is contextually accurate. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a real specific story of a man that I was uh, researching recently as part of another thing. I don't want to say his name. I don't. It, it's not important. But the important thing is he was very instrumental in the beginning of the white supremacy in America, like 100, 200 years ago. But he himself was a very light skinned black man. And he just passed as white enough that he could join that class because he figured, well, my choices are either to be repressed or to be a monster and have privilege. So I'm going to choose privilege. And that kind of story just really rang true with Celadon, especially when she dressed up like the Skeksy. And I'm like, Oh girl, what are you doing? And they inevitably tear those clothes off her laughing as she screams in torment and horror. And if any little kids saw that moment, that's nightmare inducing. That's, uh, you know, these people will never be your friends. You're all monsters. How did it take you so long? Yeah. And I I could say they're cartoons and and that no real person would be like that. We have evidence to the contrary, and it won't go away. The feeling I get with Celadon's character more than anything is the way people, uh, and especially people from both conservative and Christian um, intersections, will approach uh, political leaders who are doing things that are uh, evidently harmful to the world because there are some things which they gain from that they will support them in spite of the terrible things they are doing because they have to believe these things are going to ultimately come to good because if that's not true they are supporting monsters and they can't be supporting monsters because they're good people can anyone tell me uh i'm gonna defer this one to Mackenzie and nathan what the difference is between Jen and Rian, because we haven't really got to them. They seem to be no one's favourites, and uh, they're, they're the like lead guys in both of these stories. I was uh, actually going to talk about Rian very briefly. Okay, um, but if you can delineate the difference between him and Jen, please but, do. Yeah, I mean, the, I would say Jen is more like Brea in terms of he's been raised by the mystics, so he's not a particularly active person. He's big into learning and... Um, kind of sweet but not really very dynamic yeah she's his mum yeah um and Rian is 
in every classic fantasy, Rian would be your hero. Mm. He's the uh, milk, well, not milk toast. It, Johnny Template? The, yeah, he's the, yeah, he's the Gelfling version of the Johnny Template. He's just brave enough to Jenny be a soldier. Jenny Template. Um, but not so active that he can storm in and save everybody by himself. And he's kind of interesting and engaging enough, but is massively enhanced Mm. by the pack of characters that he has around him. He also doesn't know too much about the world, so in uh, him finding out, we can find out with him. Absolutely. I I mean, I love him because he's Taron Egerton. Who Taron Egerton really is just getting for. better and better every time we hear from him. In interview, he mentioned that he grew up with Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, and they're just so special to him that the moment he got offered this role, he was like, yes! He said he didn't even read the email. He just saw the title and was like, yes, yep. yes, yes, whatever. Of, <laughs> by the end of that documentary, I'm pretty sure both me and Nathan had developed a huge crush on Taron Egerton just because he's so adorable. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Had I not had one already as a result of Rocket Man, I would have too. Uh-uh, now you've got a double crush. <laughs> But yes, both Jen and Rian highly benefit from having competent women mm-hmm. around them who mm-hmm. can solve most of their problems for them, honestly. And the instigating incident in the Dark Crystal series, which normally would really upset me because I really don't like it when you fridge women, is the death of Rian's girlfriend. So both he and Jen have this death of a loved one to start them off on their journey, but... Jen's feels a lot less like it would start anything for him if he weren't explicitly told to go do anything. Jen would never have left the the valley if he hadn't been told to. Yeah. The old mystic was very, very old anyway. It felt like his time. It was his, his father figure. It's extremely different losing a father figure than losing yeah. what I'm pretty sure Rien and Mira were on track to be married they were clearly in love and had been for a while Mm. it's a very different relationship and losing that person causes very different reactions jen is also just way more confused continuously his his voiceover throughout the first movie is always makes me giggle because he's just sarcastically uncertain about everything all the time he's He's baffled (laughs) nobody's telling me what to do and i don't even know what an agra is let alone how to find her and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he just doesn't know what's going on. And Rianne at least kind of seems like he's not the sharpest tool in the shed necessarily, but he is capable of learning from intelligent people. And I mean, I think the most comparable character to Jen is probably Gurgen. Yeah. Yeah. If I were to delineate the main difference between Jen and Rianne, it's that Rianne is a much more active character. Mm. Whereas... Rian, his whole motivation for what he does in the show is he sees an injustice happen and needs to correct it. Hmm. Whereas with Jen in the movie, he has to be directed onto his journey by people who know more than him, rather than being self-motivated to go out and change the world. And he ends up having things exposed to him more than... Rian, who is going out and trying to bring other people into his cause. I also don't think Rian, given the same offer on top of the crystal to heal it, but to save Deet, uh, replacing Kira in that situation, I don't think Rian was hesitant to stop the Skeksis, whereas Jen was 
100% willing to give up just to protect Kira. Hmm. I think Rian has a little bit more guts in that way. I, I loved his um, leap out the window, the, uh, I, the camera following him out of this castle and plummeting down into the uh, moat below. It had a feeling of uh, like sort of a handicam uh, sensibility. And Louis Leterrier, who directed this, also did The Incredible Hulk, which we've already covered, Clash of the Titans, not so great, and a couple of the Transporter films, which are actually really solid action films. He knows what he's doing, but very specifically... He decided to film every puppet like it was a person, just to make sure that this actually felt very filmic, and rather than just going, oh, we got a puppet here, it was like, no, 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 let's just do this and do it seriously. And I feel like, aside from some wonderful moments with some obviously comic relief characters, The Dark Crystal is trying to spin serious fantasy. It's never really self-serious, but it takes what's going on with some serious weight that people then didn't expect from puppets, and don't now. It didn't help the original film when the audiences were baffled by it, and that audiences in general tend to reject high fantasy. They, they don't like uh, effectively just being given fairies and elves that are very serious about themselves. What they like is stuff that thumbs its nose at high fantasy. They will eat up Shrek... And they will eat up Game of Thrones, which is like, we got fantasy, and we're not like those nerds, because our fantasy fucks! Uh, whereas this is, you know, pretty... Like, it is the one of the finest examples of high fantasy that we've had since Lord of the Rings. Mm. I think one of the elements of the series that I utterly loved was the fact that it doesn't feel the need to justify itself it Mm. goes in with the assumption that if you're here you like the dark crystal Mm. you're in you you buy into this stuff without having to be convinced whereas game of thrones apart from maybe the first season which i really thought was excellent always had this sense to me of having to sing for its supper, having yeah. to convince the audience to keep watching. Oh, you don't want to stop watching because this character's going to get their head smashed the fuck in. Mm. Oh, yeah, you know me so well. That's totally going to keep me here. I'm done. Bye. Oh, you can't just stop watching. Watch me. <laughs> or you but, could do what I did and just not start. Yeah, mm. but I honestly thought we would never see high fantasy again. I, I, was, I was thinking, like, like, because of this the success of the rejection we're never going to see your basic elves and dwarves story told seriously on a high budget on a on a big screen ever again all of the stuff that you know the the high fantasy books get written about that's for its you know this very specific non-screeny audience mm. but as it turns out you can totally do it i did not expect this and one of the things about the dark crystal that maybe I think is helping it in that regard a little bit. And it's just my opinion. And one of the things that I like about it extrapolated is that while it is certainly high fantasy and like follows in the traditions of things like Lord of the Rings narratively, it isn't based in the high fantasy tropes and creatures visually that most people are used to. There aren't elves, there aren't fairies, there aren't, centaurs it's not harry potter it's not lord of the rings it's not king arthur mythology stuff it's an entirely unique world and i wonder whether or not that's letting some people kind of ease it more like Hmm. science fiction 
Yeah, well, they do say it's an alien world which has three suns, like Tatooine, or mm. it has two suns. It's asking you to do your reading less, and like, rather than going, right, well, these are elves, and we all know about elves. Uh, I don't know, remind me? Well, they're Gelflings, so let's just worry about these ones mm. instead. Well, this is, yeah, the fact As that they Duarte are... As with and Akka. The fact that it is entirely new, the fact that they they are all newly invented races mm. for this world. I say newly back in the early 80s, obviously. Um, but it does mean that there there is no falling back onto those lazy tropes. Yeah, Classical lazy tropes. tropes of um, this is an elf and they're tall and elegant and this is a dwarf and they're short and greedy. And, and covetous. Yeah. Or alternatively, it's not going to try to do the Shrek thing of flipping those things on their heads, right? It's not going to be, here's a, a fat, lazy elf who doesn't do anything, and mm-hmm. here's an ogre, and he's your hero. It doesn't have any of those things, so it doesn't have to reject them or follow suit. And here's Pinocchio. We're going to make a joke about the fact that he wears a thong. Lol, so random. See you for Shrek 3. Somebody once told me the world. I was raised on these movies. I can't help having some fondness for them, but yeah. The other thing that they really, really get right as well, and it's it's this has only just occurred to me, but they totally do. You have all of these very different uh, peoples and cultures but they don't they don't think of themselves in the way that we an audience see them in in the original film jen and kira possibly because they are the last of the gelfling think of themselves as but i'm so tiny what can i possibly do i loved the fact that they they built on the uh, the nobility of the Gelfling in the series and the the fact that as far as they're concerned, they're the right size. It's everybody else that's too big. You know, they're they're very at the the centre of their universe and in charge of their world. And that's one of the reasons why they all start to get so um, so afraid when it becomes apparent that the Skeksis aren't going to respect that anymore also a benefit over many traditional fantasies in my opinion is that while rian may be something of a generic lead character he is not annoying and i find a lot of the like starter characters for fantasy stories can be because they're aimed at young male audiences can be kind of grating the chronicles of Prydain lead made me want to rip my hair out he is <laughs> nibbly little bugger and there's nothing I could do to get through those books without hating him. <laughs> I don't hate Rian, and I don't hate Jen. At most, I feel kind of neutral to them sometimes. So how does making the Gelflings race a matriarchy influence the story? It's not entirely a matriarchy. The Sifa were originally led by an elder who was male, and then, and now all he says is hello. But um, <laughs> but th- but the rest of the Madras, all the Madras are, are definitely ladies. Uh, for me, I like that a lot because the it made the Gelflings feel like their culture as a whole were a lot more like nurturing, which is kind of a I guess a cop out to a certain extent. But uh, I I like that a great deal also there's something to be said about the fact that lady gelflings have wings and there's all of their costuming was took that into account 
And the fact that we even had that trial by error almost moment that reflected the trial by stone we see in the movie, mm. just uh, there were some parallels being drawn between the Madras arguing and the Skeksis arguing that I was definitely appreciating. One of the things that I really liked about their their culture, and it's this is not specific to matriarchies by any means, but you don't really see it a lot in classic patriarchal structures, um, is the collaborative element of it, and specifically the how that's symbolised in the process of breaking up the crown when the Almodra dies. The fact that they have the the uh, crown is separated into a piece for every tribe and those pieces are taken away to the the respective Mordras and they have to bring them back and agree that they accept this Almodra to rebuild the crown so that she can have it back. And that kind of spoke of this idea of of how a a people which is scattered quite separately across the land ultimately still finds ways to represent that they are connected that they are all a part of a, a bigger thing it also i think in sticking with a matriarchal society reframes the first movie in an interesting way where in a lot of the stories where a male character saves the day you expect them to become this high position of power and the most important person after they succeed. Instead, that role is definitely going to Kira. Instead, she's the one who's going to be with Jen's help rebuilding the world. And there's this moment in the first movie or in the first movie in the movie that I noticed, especially on this rewatch after the show where Kira sits in a throne of mm. one of the ruins of a Gelfling town, and it's this nice little bit of mm-hmm. foreshadowing, mm-hmm. I suppose, yeah. that that's her position to take, not Jen's. Mm. One thing that I, is interesting about the uh, matriarchy is that Agra is distinctly framed as the sort of physical envoy of the the planet itself and despite having a mix of masculine and feminine features she's distinctly um comes across as feminine and is referred to in the series as mother agra and then to have that extrapolate out into the cultures that exist in thra that they're also reflecting this idea of of the matriarchy and then that acts as an opposition to the way that the Skeksis are operating, where regardless of whether or not they identify in a gendered way, the the head of the Skeksis is still the emperor. Like, it's still this masculine gendered term mm. and is uh, distinctly sets himself above the others in this ruling manner, whereas with the uh, the Gelfling, there is a like you said before, a collaborative element to the way that they rule, the way that they choose their leader, and the way that they pass on that power after the Almadra dies. And that Agra, despite essentially being god, is never putting herself in a position of power for the Gelflings only in guidance, and only when needed, really. Mm. Yeah, she comes across as a, a god only in the sense that 
um, somebody like Gaia would be perceived as a god, not really uh, an, a figure of authority, but just um, a personification of the energy of the earth itself that everybody is connected through. <laughs> so what are... Th- oh, uh, any more on Olga, by the way, because I know she was one of your favourite characters growing up. Mm, well, I think, I like I say, I think I covered the, the guts of it with my piece at the beginning, but... One of the things that I really love about Augra is that she's this wizened old, slightly losing it, deteriorating fate in the film. And the way they kind of expanded on that in the series was that you you sort of see her take this path, which is not an enviable one. She starts out effectively dead, and has to be reawakened because she's gone wandering in the stars and and forgotten to come back. And there's a a sense of responsibility and a sense of guilt that then permeates everything she does through the whole series, but that's not so intense that it renders her unable to act. She is still kind of... She takes her responsibilities seriously, but she is also very aware of what her part in all of this is and that it's not her role to go marching in and try and fix things directly. Hence why the main actions that she takes are those of puppeteer. She pulls strings, she adjusts rods, and she directs people onto the paths that they need to be on in order for everything to come back together. Um, for me, there's always this sense with her that she kind of, you know, Gandalf's thing about the wisest cannot see all ends. Augur almost seems to have that, but but reversed. She can see all ends, and that's the problem. She can see all the possible yeah. ends, and she doesn't know which threads are going to untangle which way. So while she can place pieces on the board and she can pull the odd strings here and there... Um, she's also got to be quite careful that she doesn't end up setting off a course of events that will take everybody down an even darker path than they're on already. I've just read here that uh, the uh, mechanical parts of the new Gelflings were remotely operated via a modified Wii controller. (laughs) That is Nintendo making the world better. Modified Nintendo controllers are very useful for a lot of makers. It is a big sub-industry. So what are the implications of the Great Convergence ending to all this? Because honestly, while I was watching The Age of Resistance, I was thinking, God, I hate the Skeksis. I hate these guys. I hate them so much. I like at the end of like at the end of all of this, at the end of the season, at the end of the film, their punishment is to effectively be reabsorbed into the mystics and become supreme beings who grow wiser and depart into the universe. A very very ultra peaceful ending of everybody learning a little and it just felt like that part of me that wants to see violent justice done, which is not a part of me I'm proud of, was like, no, the Skeksis must suffer before they explode. They must see all of their works fall to ash. Which is, that is a part of us as a human race 
that we need to leave behind, ironically, to reach something like this. I, strangely enough, didn't wish for the Skeksis to suffer more because a lot of their life feels like suffering. Anytime some menial mistake occurs, some horrible thing is done to them by their by their like. Like none of them can really trust each other, especially with the Chamberlain around. But you've you've got like mild uh punishments like the peeper beetle incidents. Uh, Where you which get was a, uh, a cage strapped to your head and then a beetle eats your eyeball. Which is horrifying until the CGI eyes of the peeper beetle pop out. <laughs> and then it's a little comical and then it devours the character's eye. And it's like, oh, that's horrifying. But, the, but it the happens to that, the worst of the Skeksis. The only Skeksis, by the way, who does have that horrified death. I had forgotten that Tech does, in fact, get flung down the pit of lava at the end, screaming like a pig in a wall. Which well, results in one of my favorite shots in the original movie, where mm. the mystics are just calmly walking along and one of them explodes into a ball of fire. <laughs> oh, they all Barry's look at dead. him for like a second and then they just And then they just going. carry on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, and okay. now you can think of that as justice for the Grunak that he threw down there. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. That was actually the bit where he beats one of the podlings to death the with a piece of, you know, with, uh, with with a piece of machinery, and there's no comeuppance to that. That was one of the only like th- it's been said in their production notes that they were inspired by, among other things. Uh, Game of Thrones. So I was like, thank God it was only this bit that really reminded me of Game of Thrones and everything else. They took the richness of Martin's world and kept the sadism into just all of these... uh, Bob Chipman referred to them as just a bunch of pathetic Ramsay Boltons. Mm. (laughs) But yeah, they torture in a a sort of a comical and horrendous way and they they, they, they sort of give me your essence. It's the glee with which they hurt, which just made me go, oh God, I need to erase these things from existence. It almost feels at one point like it's not... The, the drinking of the essence is kind of just a, a symbolic thing, that it's not the fluid itself that they need, it's that the act of cruelty and the Energizes act of torture them. yeah, infuses them with some kind of appalling life force. Yeah, they, they are psychopaths who gain vitality from torture because they're definitely existing at that point. Mm. Well, and the essence is also the metaphor for the... Uh, the wages of the people that work for like a boss class type individual because oh, yeah. like y- you don't earn a million dollars you take it from the people working for you yeah uh, yeah it also I, reminded I, me of of books like uh, never let me go where the the uh, el- it's a society of the elderly who eat the young mm. it's just it is as, as against nature as you can get it's defying the cycle I can tie it back to his dark materials again. If the mystics are effectively the Skeksis' souls, and Mm. they are basically ripping the souls out of Gelflings in an attempt to give themselves something they no longer have and don't really want. They are definitely pathetic. I didn't really ever get to feel sorry for any of them because they're so gleefully sadistic. Mm. Carry on, Lauren. I keep interrupting. Oh, no, no. I was just thinking that at the beginning of the show, I found Skektek to be the one that I felt for a lot because I felt like a lot of the other Skeksis really, like, punished him and picked on him 
unnecessarily and that he had all these animals that he actually kind of protected and he was a friend of Agra at one point. They mentioned that they used to have this friendship, but then by the end, he's just so far gone by that point. It was like, okay, well, now you're truly irredeemable, mm. which was, I don't know. I wasn't expecting to see an arc like that for one of the Skeksis because we know that they're monsters. Mm. And I think that the convergence at the end, my biggest problem is the fact that like these aliens showed up they fucked this world up real bad, and then once the world was like, look, we have made you better again, they're like, well, sorry, my planet needs me. And like, <laughs> I have to Hopefully go now. Hopefully they it's died on their way us. back to their home planet. Nice. Yeah, and they all just fuck off. And then, you know, we have two Gelflings, which, you know, that's probably not going to be enough to restart that whole race. And especially whenever you think about how they keep saying that, like, uh, Gelfling lives go back to... Uh, Thra and that there, there's this cycle and they were removing that essence from the cycle. Maybe Gelflings or maybe uh, Kira and Jen are just going to be the last ones mm. and then the world will be what podlings are left and then all of the wild creatures. I mean... Uh, Maybe the next movie would be the planet of the fizz gigs. I don't know. It's <laughs> truly it will be a planet, planet. of fizz gigs. I, I tell you what, <laughs> it does make me think that maybe the way that we solve this shitstorm we're in at the moment is to build a spaceship, spaceship and, and put the one percent on them, it and fire them yeah, at the sun. We've, we, no, no, no. <laughs> just, just say to them, yeah, there's totally a colony out there. Yeah, you, you're going to go. Off you you are going to live in utter opulence. opulence. We, we'll all stay here this where things are starting ship. to deteriorate. Yeah, you're you better guys, than us, so you deserve you, absolutely. it. Absolutely, you you have earned. But your no, place we don't give it to ship. them. We make it that they can't have it, and then they all buy their way onto it. No, 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 better. Yeah, we make them all fight each other for their places. Yeah, <laughs> and the ones who survive and buy their way on it get to get on this spaceship and yep. be fired, and then we fire them into the sun. Into the sun. <laughs> To be fair, we haven't tried that yet. I think it would do a lot for global warming, it's specifically. As an idea. About direct action. I mean, rich people do seem to be trying really hard to get to space. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Elon Musk, our own human skeptic, tech, mm. uh, has been really pushing for it. What we're describing is a little bit Nazi-ish. So my suggestion would be that we make it technically work. We make this ship something that actually could feasibly leave our solar system and we definitely say there is a definite slim chance you'll get to a better planet bye and then they go therefore we give them a chance no 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 this isn't authoritarian alex these are all just cishet white dudes and we should eat them because they're the rich <laughs> that's how this works anyway um, none of them look tasty. <laughs> so, so what are and i hope we've all learned it the key themes of the dark crystal well, can I just say one more thing about this, uh, the life uh, on Thra by the end of the movie? Yes, It's do. also implied that the Skeksis genocided uh, the group Keks, whatever the Grunets. little guys are yeah. that get turned into the Gartham by the end with the like, sod, like sewn up mouths. Those are the only two left, according to the show. They probably murdered all of them, too. There used to be multiple different sentient species. The Skeksis would kill all the podlings next, given enough time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they're colonizers. They just did a genocide. And then they did another genocide. It's addictive. <laughs> Once you pop, you just can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> Once you pop a podling. <laughs> podling chip. Uh, uh, podlingles. <laughs> now I just see Hup with a really impressive mustache. 
the, okay, so on a more let's, obviously this is going to seem silly if in years to come there are whole new productions and like season two of of this or a movie, The Power of the Dark Crystal, that in fact does answer these questions. But there are all kinds of possibilities. Another of the things that uh, this was inspired by was The Last Airbender. And despite the fact that the airbenders were all wiped out by the Fire Nation, airbenders come back into the world in Legend of Korra. So there is always the possibility that um, they didn't get all the Gelflings, that maybe there's some in hiding, that there's uh, other clans. And there's a hell of a lot of them, which... Mm lends weight to the possibility that, you know, some of the smarter ones could simply remove themselves. Kind of like the the panda tribes in uh, Kung Fu Panda, mm. all in I a mean, hidden think, valley somewhere. I think that's implied by the movie almost because they did not manage, they thought they'd gotten rid of all of them, mm. and they were wrong twice on that account. Yeah. And mm-hmm. one of them was with the people they know are actively like mm. their other halves and would not like them around. And one of them is like, in a podling village that they regularly raid and have just missed her all this time for mm. no good reason. If they just went slightly further away, pretty good chance that the Gelfling are just hiding out in the Groton Caves perfectly fine. Please. I was going to say, from the show, I really felt like there were going to be a whole lot of Gelflings hiding in the Caves of Grot, especially after the Aratham mm. ally with them, because... They could all be somewhat protected in there. It didn't seem like the Skeksis really wanted to venture in there very far. Mm. And if the Darkening is relatively handled poor Deet, uh, then maybe there is a good spot for them to hide until the conjunction. Yeah. And the nature of the colonizer attitude is generally ultimately lazy and and like ignorant of what you might have missed so it's quite possible that they just go yep there's no gelflings left here excuse, excuse me. me there's no gelflings left here you do realize eddie Izzard's literally in this yes production. i do that's why it I was a joy it. hearing him it was a delight and uh, flipping from dramatic to comedy as well that was uh that was quite well done mm. uh, so again what are the key themes of the dark crystal to finish us off here I think if you could boil it down to one idea, it's the idea of unity among separate things. It's in the movie with the ending where the mystics and the Skeksis uh, reunite. And in the show, that theme is transferred onto the disparate clans of the Gelfling that in order to survive this trial need to come together to fight against a tyrannical authority. And to a lesser extent, with Kira and Jen being successfully adopted into different species families and Hup's role in the resistance with the Dark Crystal and joining the Gelflings. And I think if you add to that, since we know that the ultimate end of a lot of the things that we saw in the show is going to be very dark and very sad and very genocidal, that even knowing that... There is power in resistance from the capitalist class, from the colonizing influence of such things, from the very obvious global warming uh, metaphor that the darkening is, that in that resistance, even though you should fail, even if you know, even that we, the viewer, knows that they are going to fail to some extent, to most extents, there is still power and it is still worth resisting. 
another one that I got, another thing that I got from Jim Henson himself uh, is that everything is connected. Good, bad, everything on Thra, even the Skeksis and the, uh, the uh, Mystics, even though they're effectively visitors, they have, you know, their actions um, ripple out from them, and like stones in a mill pond. they are connected to each other as well. Yeah. And, like I said, that ending, you know, lacking in violent justice, uh, though it is, is something that we should aspire to in terms of wanting for there to be a wisdom at the end, wanting for there to be a moving forwards and away from uh, the barbaric. There's a deep underlying current throughout every rendition of this story so far of hope that even if you start the day like the very first movie with death and hopelessness and going on to something that you cannot comprehend and do not know how it will resolve you should have hope and Agra I think is the character who most exemplifies this in the new series with her reconnecting to the song of Thra and going from a state of having broken everything to not knowing that it can be fully fixed but still acting as though it can be still hoping and I think that is really difficult in the world we live in right now to get sometimes and I think this show does a really good job of promoting hope in a dark world and the the last thing that I got stuck on and was an eye opener was during the um Netflix documentary about uh, Age of Resistance, the puppeteers said at the end, almost in a throwaway fashion, uh, that they got freedom to do, uh, by by Netflix and the the purse holders, they got a lot of freedom to make this thing. But they were also given a hell of a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that is the missing part of free speech and freedom as a concept if you just have freedom and you interpret that as I can say and do whatever I want and everyone else has to take it, that is abdicating responsibility. If you have that freedom and you are aware of your responsibility to say and to do things that you will abide by, then that weathers the consequences on you. That means that you are not charging everybody else with accepting it. You are accepting that there will be people who don't like what you do or say. And you are ultimately, uh, you know, living with that responsibility teaches you to behave as though what you do has knock-on consequences. And this is, this is something that I've said before about... Um and it harm none, do what thou wilt, the wicked read. It's, there are people who look down on that concept and say, how can that be your, your only guideline? Do what thou wilt. Go and, you know, so everybody goes through the world doing whatever the hell they want. No, and it harm none is pretty important. You have to consider very carefully the impact of your actions. Because everything that you you do, every action that you take in the world is going to have an impact on somebody 
even if it's just you. So give it some thought. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Okay, so Mackenzie and Nathan, where can folks find your Muppety-related things? Because you talk, to, talk about a lot of things tangentially linked to The Dark Crystal. And we actually have talked explicitly about The Dark Crystal, so if you want to hop over to a different podcast and listen to two of the same people talk about The Dark Crystal <laughs> for a couple more hours, just the movie, we're going to cover the series separately, uh, you can find us at The Rainbow Connection, where you find podcasts. Uh, I have Twitter at, sorry, I'm going to re-say that. You can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram, and you can find our podcast on Twitter at Muppets Pod. We also are starting a podcast talking about video game movies called Video Game the Movie the Podcast. Uh, the first couple episodes of that should be coming out right away uh, on Twitter at VGTM Podcast. Uh, that'll be findable in the same podcast venues. And Lauren, uh, is there anything um, that you'd like to recommend? Not particularly, not offhand. Uh, Unfortunately, there was a new content drop for Destiny, so my life has been primarily that. (laughs) But I haven't plugged my my Twitter account recently, so I don't do anything special. But if you ever wanted to talk to me or see my rambling rants, mainly about about destiny uh it's now at vixen witch and the w for which is two v's like in the movie the so which the vvvich so yeah v-i-x-e-n-v-v-i-t-c-h okay and we're going to finish on the music of uh trevor jones who honestly uh, this piece that the i'm going to play the 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 suite the uh the, the the mix of themes that plays at the beginning of the original soundtrack it is beyond transcendent there is a point listen for it nearer the end when it goes and it rolls down into it and then explodes out into a crescendo of this theme and I thought there is no way they're going to get close to that in um, Age of Resistance. And they, they, there were several themes which felt really kind of arresting. It never quite hit this, but they got just the right tone for the, um, for the TV version. But this piece of music 
I don't know when I first saw the Dark Crystal, but I know that it was a lot longer before I thought I first saw the Dark Crystal. And this music has stuck with me beyond language. So we're going to finish on that. And we will be back, maybe, at some point on Thrower to talk about further adventures. God, I hope so. Me too. Very attached to this world now. And we haven't really talked enough about Jim Henson in this, but I know for sure we're going to be talking about him at some point. Uh, If nothing else, Sharon and I are going to be talking about my film that I grew up with, Labyrinth. Yes! Yes! (laughs) I feel like this whole crew will be back for that. Just a a hunch. Uh, So good. You remind me of What thing? The baby with the power. Power. Do 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 Sharon used to sing it to Lyra's a lullaby. That was Lyra's lullaby, yeah. They'd go back and forth. She'd insist on it every night. Eventually I was like, you're going to have to be able to go to bed without this one song. Because like whenever um, Sharon was away, I'd be like, right, so I've got to now sing the whole thing like Bowie. And you know I'm going (laughs) to. Okay, well, more on that when we do Labyrinth, but uh, you can look forward to that. This is the music of Trevor Jones. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out! (laughs) (laughs) Please! Like I'd let the Chamberlain teach my kids. (laughs) Chamberlain, good teacher, yes? (laughs) Friends to podcast. Friends! Chamberlain might be the worst teacher in that... (laughs) Best babysitter, though. Back of your friend, <laughs> and here is Dagger. Ah,
Oh, I, I forgot one fundamental thing about the Dark Crystal, which I was I, I, I was going to mention a lot earlier. This is Zelda. Like, the makers of the original Legend of Zelda and the uh, and Miyamoto and company going forwards, turning it into uh, Link to the Past and then uh, Ocarina of Time, they looked at Jen's quest and they looked at Kira and they were like, right, th- like this is you know, wonderful fantasy and this fairy boy raised by other fairies in the woods keeps coming up and keeps coming back. There is a, I believe... Even if it's an unconscious link between Zelda and Dark Crystal. I love Which that. Is why Netflix has to give me and Nathan millions of dollars to make our Legend of Zelda series. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I didn't mention, actually, that uh, two of the, uh, the guys had an idea for a concept for a Labyrinth sequel. And they got in touch with uh, the uh, Henson Company we've got, uh, and said, we've got this. And they went, no. But we are doing uh, uh, Dark Crystal. Do you want to do that? Yes! And it's like, what? And they, they specifically said when they were offered this job is, I would do this for a dollar. Just, like, the, the best job in the whole wide world. I love that everybody who's involved seems to just be deeply, deeply in love with the idea of this happening in any way, shape, or form to the point where, like, Jason Isaacs said yes clearly just on the script and then he saw the actual footage and he was like oh I didn't realize it was also gonna look good <laughs> I have a sneaky feeling that everybody who was involved in it they started their um, their auditions stroke interviews off with right prepare yourself for the fact that this is gonna make no money mm. <laughs> and also there's uh, we didn't mention the fact that they do the opposite of animation which is that the puppeteers do their acting and performance and they give the dialogue on set and then that footage gets shown to the act, the voice actors who then revoice that scene and that's the opposite the animation's done the other way around they take the original uh, uh, lines read like a radio play and they animate that so this was that really puts an emphasis on what the puppeteers are doing. There is one notable exception, by the way, and mm-hmm. that is the uh, English language tracks for Ghibli movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any at all dubbing. True. And by and large, those are really good as yeah. well. Like in terms of you know uh, subs, not dubs, the Ghibli movies get away from that the yeah. the, the age old um, hatred of, of English uh, language versions of anime. Mm. But the I point think almost being any film at this point does get decent enough dubs. I think it's mostly mm. a series problem. And we shouldn't be talking about this. No, no. anime. You're going to need to cut all of that. <laughs> I mean... No anime, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Chamberlain He's is He's going to be anime. doing everything in a Chamberlain. And then voice. everyone's so going to be like, oh, could you do this anime? Could you do this anime? I'm going to be like, like the Chamberlain. <laughs> wants to give me and Nathan money, we'll talk about your anime movies. Yes, <laughs> you don't have lives. They could do a whole new podcast just called The Anime Connection. The anime that Sharon and Alex won't do. They would love it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I won't do it for free. <laughs> oh, we also didn't mention the fact that when the Gotham <laughs> killed that Landstrider... That's like that's gonna be the bit that kids really get upset about. Mm. Like like that that Landstrider is like it's only been good and nice and sweet and gentle, and then it's so big and and, and tall and they vulnerable are with those little biscuit away from being a luck dragon. Yeah, and and, and, and it just gets 
eaten by these evil black crabs that swarm it while it's screaming. And it's like, you really wanted to traumatize these children, didn't you? Uh, and, uh... Oh, we got to watch this movie in theaters recently, and there were several children, and they all seemed mostly fine throughout the entire thing, except for one kid who screamed quite loudly when Fizzgig originally jumps out, because it's a jump scare. <laughs> But That's the they, only time anybody seemed scared. They do really well afterwards when Fizzgig uh, acts badly. And then, um, uh, like, when he throws that little tantrum, that's a really nice sort of endearing way to go, oh, he's just this little thing. So that when he gets tossed down into the uh, the volcano shaft near the end, uh, the average child, I would imagine, would be like, oh, my God, no! Because this is a film that doesn't pull its punches and it would totally kill Fizzgig. And Fizzgig doesn't get brought back. Kira gets brought back, Fizzgig does not. Yes, he does. Fizzgig gets him out. Augur gets him. You said you loved this film when you watched it a three gajillion times. I forgot that thing. Lauren remembered. (laughs) I I just had a little heart attack, Sharon. Fizzgig's one of my favourite characters. I love the one with the eye patch in the show, especially when he attacks the scroll keeper. And it's just like, oh no, you have to get away, you adorable little ball of fluff. He did. Because Fizzgigs can't die. They're awesome. <laughs> Fizzgigs are the real gods of Thra. It's true. It's yes. true. Absolutely. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> also, it is worth commending that a lot of they had a lot of gelflings from different places on the planet, and several of them were clearly gelflings of colour. They weren't all mm-hmm. a bunch of different white people. They seem to have gone out of their way to cast the voice actors from a range of cultures and ethnicities, which mm. I thought was commendable. Yeah. And it's just a random aside as I was looking into all the Skeksis. All of the Skeksis' pronouns are him, even if they're effeminate, which I think is interesting. No, like, there's, I have nothing else to say other than that, but it's a weird gender fuckery thing, so I have to mention it. There are several female voice actors for the Skeksis. Mm. The, the Ornamentalist, in particular, being the only one... So the Ornamentalist was voiced by a male voice actor in the movie and a female voice actor in the show, and displays very effeminate. I really liked the Ornamentalist. I mean, the whole, the whole line of, Death is my canvas, is just... <laughs> Oh my god, like, big moon. <laughs> On this most recent rewatch, Nathan, like, n- uh, nudged me and said, okay, the gourmand and the ornamentalist have great gay best friend energy going on. <laughs> Fucking right? Oh my god, make it yeah. clear. But it just, <laughs> look at what I mean, you're I was working pretty... with here. These are death vultures, mostly <laughs> skeletal, and your job is to hang fancy bits of stone off them. <laughs> Yeah, and she and she slash he slash I don't know what pronouns because now I'm all confused. But I love the ornamentalist. She's so extra. He's so extra. Just ah, uh, it's Skeks so, so extra. Yes, Skeks <laughs> so extra. Oh, that'd be a great shirt. <laughs> I just want that now. I want so much work. I've been drawing like every character. Do you know how hard a gelfling is to draw correctly? They're <laughs> they've got weird face structures. They look a bit like horses. Well, they're close enough to humans that you want to draw them in normal proportions, but if you do that, they're wrong on some deep fundamental level, and it's kind of upsetting. Uh, also, oh, when we th- first started watching it, I said to Sharon, right, expect a lot of shocked gelfling faces the whole way through this. Like, just open mouths, I didn't expect this, the whole way through. And I was right. I, I think big props to the people who developed the newer Gelfling puppets in Age of Resistance because none of them have the kind of 
uncanny, or at least they're a lot less uncanny than Jen was upon his initial introduction. I love the Dark Crystal, but the first two or three times I watched it, I just could not get over Jen's face for half the movie. Mm. Kira doesn't freak me out, but Jen's got uncanny valley on him. I don't think it helps that they introduced Jen in the nip, because... Why? <laughs> he looks like a marionette. He He's does. got the, the he separated like body parts. Those, um, those uh, wooden puppets that animators use to form um, body shapes to draw. See, I think it does help. I think that that's just laying it out on the line, going, okay, all of you people wondering what you're looking at is puppets, see? Now he's going to put some clothes on and we'll carry on. <laughs> okay, that's fair. And because uh, apparently a brand food uh, that you know, attended screenings where kids and slightly older kids were watching this, and then they were asking him, "What? What did I just look at? What did I see?" And he said, "Puppets." And they were like, "What?" Because they've been raised only on CGI movies, so it's it's bizarre for them the Muppets had a very brief comeback and then disappeared again and they've given you only a couple of shows worth of stuff to talk about but I'm I'm imagining you stretch that out as much as you possibly can you guys yeah we're disappointed one of the major things we were looking forward to was a new series they'd announced on Disney Plus that they've cancelled at this point so Disney is please Disney Disney is not doing very well with the Muppets, which is unfortunate, but it is a, I'm glad that Disney didn't get their hands on the Dark Crystal license when they did all of their buying up with the Jim Henson Company. Mm. Oh, HBO also is ex- getting exclusivity for Sesame Street now, so we're very angry at everybody but Netflix for how they're treating their Muppets right oh. now. HBO's Sesame Street. Jeez. So, like, the whole point was that it was supposed to be uh, available to, like, little kids, specifically little kids who live in maybe poorer areas. There's and, a reason it's set in urban New York. Yeah, in the barrio. They, yeah, sorry. Um, I'm, I could go on, but... Yeah, so HBO are like, well, you better be paying your subscription then. <sighs> the age of streaming has caused some major kickbacks into bad systems of... Mm broadcasting. But Netflix, it would appear, did something really, really right with this one. Yes, and Mm -hmm. fingers crossed we get at least one more season. They do have a tendency of making two seasons and then cancelling it because that's the peak you can get for buzz apparently, their algorithms have decided but if the people who are making that know that, at least they can maybe end it on something they feel satisfactory. Honestly, I'd be fine with just this forever and... You know, if we get any more, that's a bonus. I could live with it, hmm. but I don't know, hope is nice. <laughs> hope is indeed nice. <laughs>